Chapter Twenty One of the Mystery of the Hidden Room. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Hidden Room by Marion Harvey. Chapter Twenty One The Steward. I was taken by surprise when Mason knocked on the door to tell us that he had prepared some luncheon for us. We had talked for two hours and had virtually arrived nowhere. The thing was beginning to get on my nerves, and I said as much to McKelvie as we seated ourselves at the table. "'Yes,' he returned. "'It's getting on mine, too. I feel like, well, a person tied to a tree who can go so far and no farther. But I'm going to break away.' You mean you are going to try to locate the criminal since we can find no clues to help Ruth? I asked. No, not directly, at present. I'm going to try to locate substantial evidence against him, for your clever criminal is not so easily caught. The trouble lies right here. Though I know the murderer is clever, I have no idea as to his identity because I do not absolutely know the true motive for the crime, or rather, I should say, no proof, for unfortunately there are any number of persons who might have been in the house at that time, and who had sufficient motive for killing Darwin. Can't some of them produce alibis? Alibis? I spent all day yesterday chasing alibis. Let's go over them. First, there's Mr. Trenton. Heavens, you don't suspect him, I gasped. Why not? Don't you suppose he realized, as you did, that he was primarily to blame for Mrs. Darwin's marriage? And didn't he, while living in this house, have an opportunity to witness and resent the treatment accorded to his daughter? and more than resent his own humiliation at the hands of Philip Darwin, a humiliation of which even young Darwin was cognizant, if he spoke the truth at the inquest? You're right. I hadn't connected him with the affair at all. I suppose because he was away, I replied. He smiled. I think we can safely knock him off our list, for though he had motive, he had not the opportunity. I motored to Tarrytown yesterday and had an interview with Mrs. Bailey. On the night of the 7th, Mr. Trenton was ill, too ill to leave his bed, and precisely at midnight she herself and her doctor were in attendance upon him. "'I'm glad of that,' I said, drawing a long breath. It's bad enough as it is without dragging Mr. Trenton into it, too. Though I made certain of his alibi, because I am leaving no stones unturned in this case, still I never for one moment believed him guilty. It would be a monstrous father, indeed, who would let his daughter remain in jail if a word from him could clear her, particularly if he loved her, and had bitterly repented of his former treatment of her. "'That's one off the list. Who else could have done it?' I prompted, as he remained absorbed in thought. "'Cunningham is clever, and though he may have had opportunity, he lacks motive. 
I saw the telephone girl in the apartment house where he has a suite of rooms. She says that he left town about the 1st of October and did not return until about 10 o'clock on the morning of the 8th. Of course he might have got in the night before, in which case he spent the night in the street or with a friend, for he is not registered in any of the hotels, although he could have registered under an assumed name, both of which presumptions are absurd, since he could have easily returned home and none the wiser. The girl said he looked as he usually did when he returned from out of town, but she had no idea where he went. It seems he has many out-of-town clients whom he visits occasionally, and it would certainly take quite a while to locate them and get the desired information, with the chances ten to one that he went somewhere else altogether and had nothing to do with the murder after all. The only thing I have against him is that he is clever. And, for that matter, so I should judge was Richard Trenton. You think Dick might have done it? I'm overlooking no one. I saw Jones and got from him all the data concerning Trenton's actions on that night. Also, I telegraphed to the Chicago police to try to locate anyone who may have known him there, and we should be hearing from that end in a day or two. There is one fact that stands out clearly and can't be explained away. He left the hotel before eleven and did not return until one. Also, there is no trace of where he went during that time, since, though he taxied to the hotel, he was clever enough to take the subway or the surface car to his destination. Then we have the letter he wrote to his father, which certainly points to his intention to see Philip Darwin. Whether he did or not, we don't know but it's quite probable that he did come here, and that the two men had a conference of some sort. Again, I'm inclined to believe that he is innocent for the same reason that exonerated the father in my eyes. Yet there is his suicide to account for, and the still stranger fact that he left no word of any kind to explain his act. He paused, then continued with a shake of the head, there's not much use bothering with him at present, for he's beyond helping us in our predicament. There are others who may prove more useful. "'What about Lee?' I inquired, remembering the stick-pin and where it had been found. "'Lee Darwin is the most likely suspect that I have,' he returned, then quietly busied himself with his dessert, for Mason had entered and was hovering around. "'By the way,' he added as we left the dining-room, "'I have an appointment with the steward of the Yale Club on this very matter. I went there yesterday, but Carp was away, and I left word that I would call at one-thirty to see him. Supposing you drive me over. After this visit I'll be able to decide whether our young friend had the chance to commit murder,' he continued, when we were in the car headed for the Yale Club. He had plenty of motive. Chance, too, McKelvie. Didn't you say yourself that he was there that night when you first showed me his stick-pin? I said he was there, and I still say it, but that means nothing at all. 
We have got to prove that he was there at the psychological moment. I nodded. But even if he had been, I can't see where you find a motive. He quarreled with his uncle, I know, but there was nothing in that to cause him to shoot Darwin. Wasn't there? answered McKelvie. Surely you don't believe that he really quarreled with his uncle about Mrs. Darwin. It's absurd on the face of it that he should suddenly object to treatment that he had accepted with utter indifference for five months or so. No. No, I have another theory altogether about that quarrel. Our arrival at the club put an end to our discussion. Carp, the steward, whom I had interviewed the night I first sought McKelvie, came forward as we entered. He was a big, dependable fellow, this steward, and had been in the employ of the club for years. Moreover, he could be trusted to give correct information about the doings of the various members of the club, all of whom he knew well. "'Good afternoon,' he said pleasantly. "'If you will come into the office, I shall be glad to accommodate you.' We followed him into a small room at the side of the hall, and he invited us to be seated as he dropped heavily into a chair at his desk. But McKelvie remained standing, and as he put his questions, he paced back and forth with his hands clasped behind his back. "'I desire to ask you some questions about Mr. Lee Darwin, Mr. Carp he began. You have heard nothing from him since he left? No, sir, not a word, replied Carp slowly. Go back to October 7th, Mr. Carp. Lee Darwin engaged rooms for that night, did he not? continued McKelvie. Yes, he called me personally about noon and said he wanted a suite of rooms for an indefinite time. He came in sometime during the afternoon, but went out again at five o'clock. "'You are sure of the time?' "'Yes. There was to be a banquet of some kind to which he had been invited. It was just striking five as he came into my office here and told me he could not attend, asking me to make his excuses for him. He said he would not be back until late.' It made an impression on me at the time, because he was not in evening clothes, and I had always known Mr. Lee Darwin for a very fastidious young man. "'Do you know what time he got back?' McKelvie inquired, after a pause. "'He didn't come back that night,' answered Carp. McKelvie and I exchanged glances. "'You could swear to that?' asked McKelvie, eagerly. "'I could. I sleep on the first floor at the back of the house. About five o'clock in the morning I heard someone knocking on my window, and I got up to see who wanted me at such an hour. We don't keep open house at this club. In the dim light I saw that the man was Mr. Lee Darwin, so I motioned him to the back and opened the door for him myself. It was quite a shock to me to see him, I can tell you. He was pale and wild-eyed, and his clothes were rumpled and dusty. He stumbled in, and I helped him to his room. 
He told me to keep quiet about him, and naturally I promised. I thought he had been out on a spree of some kind. He acted as if he might have been drinking, explained Carp ponderously. What did he do after you promised silence? McKelvie took a turn around the room as he put the question. He went to bed, and at luncheon time I awakened him. He dressed hurriedly and rushed out without eating and did not return until three. There was a telegram waiting for him. He read it and then tore it up, and his hands were trembling as he did so. Then he remarked that he was leaving for the South on business and asked me to leave his room undisturbed. He left in ten minutes, and that is the last I have seen of him, replied Carp. When he came back on the morning of the 8th, were you really positive that he had been drinking, or did he give you another impression as well?" continued McKelvie. Well, to be candid, at the time he seemed to me to be scared, as if he had seen something that had terrified him plumb out of his wits. It was afterwards, in thinking it over, that I decided that he had been out on a lark responded Carp, after a moment's consideration. "'I should like to examine his rooms,' said McKelvie abruptly. "'Certainly.' Carp rose and led the way up the stairs, along a hall, and into a suite consisting of a dressing-room, bedroom, and bath. The rooms were nicely furnished, but were not unusual in any way, and gave no indication of having been recently used. Everything was in immaculate order. "'Any of his belongings still around?' queried McKelvie. "'Yes. He left some things in the chiffonier.' McKelvie strode to the article of furniture in question and examined its contents with great care, as if hunting for some definite object. Then, with a shrug, he announced that he was through. I thought he had been disappointed in his search, but one look into his sparkling eyes told me a different tale. He had been successful, but what had he expected to find? "'Thank you, Mr. Carp. I'm much obliged to you. Keep my visit a secret, particularly as your information may not be of value to me and might, if gossiped about, merely create an unpleasant situation for the young man," said McKelvie as we returned to the lower floor. "'Just as you say. Good afternoon, Mr. McKelvie," and the door closed behind us. As we descended the steps, I said curiously, "'What did you find, McKelvie?' For answer, he pulled from his pocket a small yellow satin sachet bag with the initials L.D. embroidered on it in blue. He placed it in my hand, and with the remark, Take a good whiff. It's a heavenly scent. I held the dainty bag to my nostrils and inhaled deeply. It was wonderfully, delicately fragrant. I had a distinct recollection of having been recently made conscious that there was in this world such a subtle, elusive perfume, but for the moment I could not place it. 
like a melody that haunts by its familiarity even when its name eludes the mind did this perfume waft across my senses the knowledge that i had breathed in its fragrance before and on two distinct occasions then memory awoke and i saw myself drawing back from a blood-stained handkerchief which had been suddenly thrust beneath my nose at headquarters and recalled wondering where i had come across that perfume before ah i had it it was dick who first introduced me to it he also had a tiny sachet of yellow satin embroidered in blue and when i noticed it with some astonishment among his things he laughed in an embarrassed way and said a girl he knew had made it for him when i asked him what it was he named it for me with a shamefaced look the subtle perfume that now assailed my nostrils and delighted my senses was none other than the fragrance that scented dick's belongings that clung to the persian silk cover in the secret room and that had left its trace on that square of cambric that philip darwin had been holding the fragrance of rose jacqueminot and rose jacqueminot meant a woman and the only woman i could think of was cora manning what do you make of this mckelvie i asked returning the sachet he shrugged may be important and may not i was more interested in hearing that he had been out all night which means of course that he had the opportunity i interpreted yes he had the opportunity but he may not have used it his stick pin is no proof that he was there at midnight there are all sorts of possibilities in a case like this one however he did have ample motive for besides the quarrel there is the will i examined specimens of philip darwin's handwriting he does not make his capitals with a flourish he makes his r's straight so he was disinheriting his nephew and not his wife also the criminal knew that fact or why his attempt to destroy the scraps by burning which would account you see for his still being in the study when mrs darwin entered somehow i can't believe lee did it unless it was on impulse i said recalling the young man's noble countenance besides mckelvie surely he isn't so depraved as to implicate ruth can there any good thing come out of nazareth he quoted he has the darwin blood in his veins so has dick for that matter i thought to myself i don't mean to imply by that that he necessarily committed the murder continued mckelvie i merely state that he had plenty of motive and chance but so did several others as we know and even if he is the murderer we have no proof of that fact nor does there seem to be at present any chance of questioning him i have a man on his trail but so far wilkins has met with no success he's evidently disguised since no one recognizes his photograph 
which, added to his use of Rose Jacqueminot Sachet, looks very bad indeed. Why? I put in. Ask me that again later, and I may be able to give you a more definite answer, he retorted. To return to the subject, it may take months to find Lee, and we haven't months to waste on this case. What do you propose to do then? I asked despairingly. I'm going to let you drive me over to 42nd Street to see Claude Orton, he responded, entering my car. End of chapter 21